going to be in the reverse number of where we were this morning. We were in Psalm 19 this morning. Tonight we are in Psalm 91. Psalm 91. You just heard it quoted a few minutes ago. Thank you, Luke. You did an incredible job. Very proud of you. All these young people, you'll hear them singing over the coming weeks, all these young people. I mean, we have so many young people that are talented and gifted, and uh, maybe not all can sing. They have gifts in other areas, but I'm thankful for every single, every single one of them. Last week, Jeremy taught you from Psalm 90, and didn't he do an incredible job? I mean, just an incredible job. Thank you for uh, Psalm 90. The week before that, Brother Tim, on the fly, talked from Psalm 119, and didn't Brother Tim do a great job? I mean, he had to pick it up at the last minute. And we're going to have Matt, who was going to speak uh, that first Sunday night. Uh, He was sick, wasn't able to do so. We'll have him to pick up because he's got Psalm 16. And we'll have him to come at some point in the month of August, and he'll teach uh, from Psalm 16. But the second most requested uh, psalm that I've had over the course of the summer that we would teach from is Psalm 91. And obviously that means it's a psalm that uh, a lot of people dearly love. Uh, It's something that we turn to frequently that means a great deal to us and uh, we uh, lean on and learn from uh, in the difficulties and in the, the challenges and the trials of our lives, and we all go through those things. And aren't we grateful that we have the, the Psalms that we can go to and we can open them up and they can become our prayers? We begin to pray the prayers that we find in the book of Psalms. Well, Psalm 91 is one of those prayers, and it's an incredible prayer, and we want to consider it for just a few minutes Uh, Psalm 91 uh, doesn't have a heading. We don't know who the author was. But Psalm 91 is the middle point between, obviously, Psalm 90 and Psalm 92. If you didn't know that, then we're we're all in big trouble. But it's the middle point between Psalm 90 and Psalm 92. And here's what's interesting. I don't have the time to do it, but we could bring up a list here and show you the words in Psalm 90 and Psalm 92 that are the same as in Psalm 91. In other words, Psalm 91 sort of stitches these two together, these two other Psalms with it, so that you got a trilogy. you got three Psalms uh, working together. And this middle Psalm is a Psalm that's filled with so many words uh, of incredible comfort. There's some things I want you to know as you think about this psalm with me for a few minutes. First of all, the psalm is broken into three particular stanzas or three particular sections. The first one is verses 1 through 8, and then you have verses 9 to 13, and then you have verses 14 to 16. Interesting, you want to know and you want to remember is that in these first two sections, in section 1 and section 2, you have the same three things that are found. It's stated a little differently in each of them, but they're the same three divisions. You have the psalmist who's confessing God as his refuge. You have God promising protection uh, for uh, God promising uh, protective action on the psalmist's behalf. And then you have thirdly, God promising the psalmist's safety. And so in each of those two sections, you have those three elements. Again, they have the psalmist's confession, uh, confessing God as the, his, his refuge. You have God's promise of protective action. And then you have God's promise to the psalmist about his safety. And as you work through this psalm in these first 13 verses, you see that repeated twice, that, 
that way of looking at it, those three points, you see it three times. Some things about the psalm that I got to talk to you about, because while you and I most of the time turn to this psalm and take great hope away from this psalm, there are many people who turn to this psalm and go away feeling hopeless. You say, how in the world could that be? Well, they look at things that are said here about the Lord's going to remove these things and protect them from and take the, away these things. And the result is they've prayed and they've asked the Lord to do these things and they weren't taken away and they begin to be discouraged and despondent, sometimes even depressed. God must surely not see me. God must surely not care about me. There's, there's a reason why God won't answer my prayer. I'm praying the scripture. I'm praying Psalm 91. And yet I'm still having these same problems going on in my life. And They go away thinking, maybe there's something wrong with me, and some even go away thinking, maybe there's something wrong with God. But none of those things should be the takeaway from this psalm. When you read this psalm and you think about what this psalm has to say, there's some things that that you want to remember, because context is always absolutely essential in understanding any passage of Scripture, right? In in, uh, theology or in your Bible classes, what do they say? They say, context is king. You've got to know what the context is. You can make any verse say anything you want it to say. You can find a verse to say just about anything you want it to say. But the question is, does it mean that in the context in which it was given? And when you look at Psalm 91, you begin to see a context that sometimes we overlook and we forget about. The first thing I want you to know about the context here is that the psalmist here was clearly not exempting everyone from all troubles. The fact of that matter is found toward the end of the psalm. You'll notice in verse 14, he says, because, you have set his, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will, hear the words, deliver him. If you look over a, a verse to verse 15, it says, I will be with him in trouble. Now, he says, I will be with him where? Not take him out of the trouble. I will be with him where? In the trouble. In verse 16, he says, and show him my salvation. Now look. If God has to deliver him, if he says, I'll be with him in the trouble, if he says, I'm going to show my salvation, it clearly isn't telling us that we're going to get delivered by praying this psalm and making this psalm ours from every reversal of life and every difficulty of life and every problem of life. God allows things into our lives, and he has a purpose for those things. And sometimes we pray and ask God to remove it. Remember Paul prayed? Uh, three times for God to remove the thorn in his flesh, and three times God said, Mm-mm, nothing doing, not going to remove it, but my grace is sufficient for you. My, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And sometimes God lets us go through things and we pray for God to remove them as the psalmist is going to do here in Psalm 91. And we pray for God to remove them and God doesn't take them away. And we go away discouraged either because we have failed some way or maybe God has failed us in some way. And the reality is that in the context of Psalm 91, he never promises that he'll take every problem away from us. He never promises we'll never go through any trial or tribulation. He never promises that what started in late January for me would be gone in, Jan- would be gone in July. You understand what I'm saying? It'll go when God takes it, when God's ready for it to go. And until then, I have to ask God to give me grace to deal with whatever I'm dealing with. You have to do the same thing. Agreed? You have to do the same thing. 
Whatever you're going through, you have to ask God to give you grace until God is ready to remove it, until God is ready to to take it out of your life. And in those moments of of each day, sometimes it's more difficult to deal with them and handle them, and other times it's more easy to handle them. But he's clearly not telling, uh, the psalmist is not clearly not telling us here that we won't have any troubles if we just get this psalm prayed right, we just understand this psalm right, because he talks about being delivered, he talks about being with him in the trouble. He talks about showing him my salvation. In other words, the psalmist has got a problem. Something's going on. He's in the middle of it. God's going to be with you in it, and when it's his time, he will deliver you out of it. But until then, we have to be patient to wait on God. There's a second thing about the context that I want to make sure that you understand, in that this context, the context of this psalm, is, is really in many ways the context of threats that God is making toward the wicked and promising the believer that he won't have to endure those same consequences. Uh, the, the key, really, to understanding Psalm 91 is verse 8. Notice what he says. Only will, with your eyes shall you look and see. Now, what is, he, what is he going to see? And see the reward of the wicked. You hear what he's saying? Uh, Think, if you will, this way. Uh, In the Exodus, uh, the children of Israel had been in bondage and in in, uh, slavery to the Egyptians. Um, And it came time for God to deliver them. And God brought a man to the forefront, Moses, who said he wasn't able to speak and didn't have the confidence to lead all those people out of Egypt and across the across the Red Sea and and across the desert and into the Promised Land. So, you know, God gave him a helper. That wasn't much of a helper, but, you know, God gave him a helper. But ultimately, what began to happen? He went in before Pharaoh, Moses did, went in before Pharaoh. And the result was that God began judging uh, the Egyptians. Do you remember the first three judgments that that God uh, exercised against the Egyptians? And did you carefully read that God also caused that, just, that judgment to fall not only on the Egyptians, but the Hebrews had to deal with that judgment as well, right? But after the third of those plagues that God brought on the Egyptians, what happens? God says, I'm going to make a distinction between the Egyptians and between my people. And his retributive justice was going to fall on the Egyptians, but I'm going to protect my people from having to experience that justice themselves. That's very much the picture of what's going on here in Psalm 91. You see God saying, I'm going to reward the wicked, but I want you to know that I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to oversee you, and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to keep you from those things that I'm going to pour out on the wicked. So he's not promising that we'll never have any troubles. There won't be times that we, he has to be with us in the midst of the troubles or the sorrows or the difficulties. He's not telling us that we can get out of every problem we ever have. Every time we pray this prayer, suddenly God's just going to you know, snap his fingers and it's all going to go away. He's telling us in its context that God's going to rain down his judgment And in raining down that judgment, he's going to make sure that his people are protected and taken care of and saved from that judgment. There's a third thing I want you to know about the context, and that is that what he's doing here is he's talking about what is dear to every Jewish uh, man and woman, for that matter. They all wanted to live a long life. 
They all wanted to have and love their children. They all wanted to be able to enjoy the life that they had. I mean, it's not really that much different than you and I. Any of you want to? Uh, any of you want to take the bus to heaven tonight? We're loading up right after the service. Uh, you know, we, of course, you can't do that, obviously. But I mean, most of us want to stay here as long as we can. It's what we know. We want to be with our loved ones and with our friends and with our family. You do reach a point in life where you get tired of the struggles and the heartaches and the heartbreaks, and you think to yourself, I'm ready to go home. How many of our senior adults, you know, we have visited over the years, and they're in a nursing home, and they can't do anything for themselves, and they lay flat on their back, and all they can do is look up, and somebody else has to feed them and change them and take care of them, and they think to themselves, this is not a life. Lord, take me home. We all can reach that particular place in life, but for the most part, we want to live as long as we can. We want our children to be healthy and prosperous. We want to be a part of their lives for as long as we can. And that's what the people of, of the psalmist day, by the way, if we, we know David didn't write the psalm, but if Moses wrote Psalm 90, it may be that Moses wrote Psalm 91. And in Moses' day, don't you think those people wanted to have the opportunity to to, to live a long life and to be able to enjoy their families and enjoy their children and their grandchildren and watch them grow up and see them do good things? Sure they did. But in this psalm, what the psalmist is telling us and what God is communicating through this psalmist to us is that when you're going through troubles and when you're going through trials, you have to turn to the Lord. There were all of those in those days that turned to the idols. They turned to the amulets, those magical amulets and they prayed to these kind of things that had no power to do anything witch doctor kind of things they couldn't do anything for you but he's saying look you don't trust any of those things you don't turn to any of those things none of those things can deliver you none of those things can help you you turn to me i am the only one who can bring deliverance in my time and so as you look at the context and we read this psalm in just a moment i want you to remember He's not promising a blanket promise that you'll get out of all trouble and all promise, all problems in your life. Matter of fact, he says, I'll be with you in trouble. Uh, he's reminding us that uh, we have to turn to him and not to anything else in the moments of our trouble because he alone can help us. All of these other things we turn to are insufficient to be able to help us. And he's reminding us that if what I say is right about this, that we're talking about God's retributive justice against unbelieving mankind, that God is the one who will protect us from that. By the way, won't that be great? Uh, you, do you know what the rapture is about? Yes, I believe in the rapture. If you don't believe in the rapture and you're a life group leader, you need to resign. We, we believe in the dispensational interpretation of the scripture. We believe in the first, we believe in the second coming of Jesus first for his church and after seven years to establish his kingdom on earth and a thousand years to reign on earth. If you don't believe that, you shouldn't be teaching. You shouldn't be leading in a life group. Uh, that's who we are. That's what we believe. Well, aren't you open-minded? I mean, don't you want to be intellectual and open-minded? No! I've already been through the intellectualism part of it. I've already settled on who I am. I'm not searching for who I am. I'm already settled on who I am. Go with me or go somewhere else. 
That's the way I feel about it. Are you happy tonight, Pastor? I'm happy. I'm happy. I don't know of anybody that's got a problem. I just want to make it clear. We got a doctrinal statement. If you're going to teach in a life group, follow the doctrinal statement. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. That's the truth that we uphold. I don't know what I was talking about. Isn't it great that the rapture's coming? And what's God going to do? God's going to deliver us before his retributive justice falls on mankind. It's exactly what Psalm 91's talking about. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. The reward of the wicked. I mean, we read through the revelation and we saw what was the reward of the wicked. Ooh. I don't want to be here. I'm thankful God's delivering us before that ever happens. And so you got to keep these things in mind as you begin to read this psalm. And you read it in these three parts. Notice in verse 1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. Now let's just stop there for a moment. In those opening verses where he talks about God being the secret place and the shadow and uh, being his refuge and being his fortress in the place where he trusts, he uses four different names for God. He uses the name Most High, the name Almighty, the name Lord, and the name God. Most High is a Hebrew word that means he's above all the kings of the earth and above all the false gods. The Almighty is Shaddai. We sometimes, it's sometimes translated in some places as El Shaddai, but here it's Shaddai. It means the all-sufficient, always-adequate God. When he says the word Lord, all capital letters, he's talking about Yahweh. He's talking about Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. God keeps his promises. And when you get down to the word God itself, it's the word Elohim. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1 when he talks about the creation of all things, that Elohim has done all of that creative work. It's the plural name for God, and it speaks of the powerful God, the one who is great and who is glorious, who is supreme and surpassing all others. So you open up this psalm by getting you focused where you need to be focused when you're having problems, right? Uh, when I have problems, you know where my first focus goes? It goes to me, how do I get out of this mess? And then I figure out that I'm not going to be able to get out of this mess on my own, and I turn it around and I say, God, how are you going to deal with this mess? And how are you going to help me in this mess? And Lord, if you want me delivered from this mess, will you deliver me from this mess? And listen, God is the one who is above all the kings of the earth. He is the one who is all-sufficient and always adequate. He is the one who is the promise-keeping God. He is the one who's the great I am. He's greater than anything. His glory is above everything. And therefore, we can run to him, and we can find in him a secret place. We can find the shadow of the Almighty. We can find refuge. He'll be our fortress. We can trust in him. In other words, we run to the Lord. That's what the psalmist is telling us. Where are you going to run when you're in trouble? Not who are you going to call. That's Ghostbusters. Where are you going to run? 
going to run to the Lord. You're going to run to the one who's the strong, promise-keeping, almighty, glorious God who is all-sufficient. That's who I'm going to run to. I'm so glad I have a God like that. I met, I met him through his son, the Lord Jesus, when I was 16 years of age. On a Wednesday night, December the 26th, 1973, when I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, do you realize that while I have disappointed him in all of those years, what's the number from where that ticked your 16 to 64? What's that number? Somebody's a quick 48 in the, is that 48? Man, I'm getting old. What's happening? Are you guessing at 48? I wish you'd have guessed 38. In all those years, I've disappointed him, but he's never disappointed me. And my confidence is in this great almighty God. And the psalmist begins by redirecting your attention away from the problem to the one who is the God over the problem. And the one who has a purpose for what you're going through. But then he picks up and he has this threefold explanation. First, you're going to see the psalmist's confession that God is the God of refuge. But then notice now he'll talk about God's promise of protective action. Notice verse 3, surely he shall deliver you. Now, here's his promise of protective action. From the snare of the fowler, that's the bird hunter who sets a trap. Now, he's not literally talking about a bird hunter here. He's just talking about anything or anyone that sets a trap for you. And from the perilous pestilence, that's widespread plague and widespread pestilence. He shall cover you. Here's number three, he shall cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you shall take refuge. He goes on, his truth shall be your shield. Hey, friends, his truth shall be your shield and buckler. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Uh, Why do we need to know the Bible? Why do we need to read the Scripture? Why do we need to understand what it says? Why do we need to be able to answer with, with, with the Bible and not with our own opinion or idea? Because the truth is our shield. That's what he says, and our buckler. You shall not be afraid of the night terror. So what do we have? We have a bird, a bird hunters who are setting a trap. We have this widespread plague and pestilence. We have night terrors. Have you ever had a night terror? Wake up in the middle of the night and your heart's racing, going 100 miles, and you know what I'm talking about, 100 miles an hour, and your, your mind won't slow down. Y'all don't ever have those kind of things? Night terrors, he goes on, nor of the arrow. Not only will, there be, will he will keep you from the night terrors, he'll keep you from the arrows that fly by day. And then he continues and adds to it, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness. And that's pestilence, that's disease, it, that's uh, COVID-19. You don't know where it is. By the way, can I just stop here for a moment? And let me just tell you that if wearing a mask is helpful to you and is protective to you, please never be embarrassed to wear a mask to church. We're thankful to have you in the service. And if everybody else is unmasked, move away from them and get over here in one of these empty spots. It's okay. We're glad for you to be here. Don't ever be ashamed to wear a mask. Amen? It's not a political issue for us. We want people to be safe. And there's pestilence that walks in the darkness. My doctor told me this past time, he said, don't get any, any more vaccines 
of any kind. So now I'm looking. I'm in the darkness now. What's this next? What's this? Monkey pox? I mean, am I going to grow hair? Are my teeth going to grow long? I mean, what, what, what's going to happen to me? Nor of pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Wow. He goes on. A lion may fall, a, a, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand. Hear, hear what he's doing now? He's gone from confessing that God is the refuge, verses 1 and 2, to God promising that he's going to take protective action. He's going to take care of you against those who are hiding and trying to trap you, the plagues and the pestilence, the night terrors, the incoming heirs, the lions and the serpents that we'll talk about in a few minutes. God's going to protect you from those things. But then he promises the psalmist safety. He says, a thousand may sh- that may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand. In other words, he's saying against all odds. I mean, th- this, is, this is overwhelming odds. How could you ever overcome a thousand? How could you ever overcome 10,000? Well, 1,000 or 10,000 with God is nothing. As a matter of fact, uh, 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 7 million on the planet uh, with God is nothing. Uh, They don't threaten him, not in the least. And so we don't need to be threatened by those things. 1,000 may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. It'll not come near you. Here's the idea of the retributive justice. All this judgment's falling on the unbelieving, on those who've rejected God, and God's raining down his justice, his judgment. But I'm protecting you from those that lay traps for you. I'm protecting you from the the plagues and the pestilences. I'm protecting you. I'm watching over you. I'm shielding you like I did my people in Egypt when I had the, the plagues, the last seven of the plagues, and I kept you away from them. He says, only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. So God is going to rain down his reward on the wicked. Then he comes back and he's going to repeat the process. He's going to take you back to the psalmist confessing that God is our refuge and then promising protective action and then promising the psalmist safety. Listen, verse 9, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge? Here we are again. Who is our refuge? The Lord is. Even the Most High, your dwelling place. That, that's the psalmist confessing God as refuge, as his refuge. Now he moves to God's promises of protective action. He says, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So let's just stop there for a moment. We've gone from him saying again that the Lord's my refuge, he's my dwelling place, to saying the Lord's going to send protective action to take care of me. And you notice again the terminology, nor shall any plague come near you. Um, No evil shall befall you. And this is where people get discouraged. They say, well, no evil befall you, no plague come toward me. That I've, I'm, in, I'm in trouble. I'm having problems. Things are, I'm going through things, and I don't understand. I've asked God to take it away. He hadn't taken it away. Why didn't he keep it away from me? Because in this particular instance, he's talking about retributive justice. 
God is raining down his reward on the wicked, but God is separating out his people and he's protecting them from the things that could befall them if they were a part of them, even to the place that God has his angels and gives them charge over you. It's the only time in the Old Testament that we have the angels mentioned as, um, as guardian angels. Um, I don't know if you all know this or not. You probably should understand this. My guardian angels um, retired. I wore them out. Some of you have worn your guardian angel out. You know, I don't know exactly how all this works. I don't know exactly how God assigns his angels, but here's what I do know. I do know that God can say to any one of his angels at any moment, I want you to go down there and take care of, and God will take care of you. As a matter of fact, who picks up this quote from Psalm 91 and uses it in the New Testament? Satan does. Satan does. Do you know that Satan knows Scripture and he knows how to twist it? Matthew chapter 4, he takes Jesus and puts him up at the highest point of the, of the temple and says, if you'll just throw yourself over here, the angels will come and they'll take you up and you won't dash your foot on the rocks. Hey, he's tempting God. He's using Scripture out of its context. But here he's talking about the protection of God. He'll give his, he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands, he'll, they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. And here comes the lion and the cobra. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. You know, I think of an illustration of what I'm talking about at the end of the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul has been traveling. Uh, he's uh, on a little island. He reaches into the wood, and what happens? A serpent grabs hold of him like this. He pulls his hand up. What would you do if you had a snake grab a hold of you? I, we got in the car after church. Where, where, are, where are all the security people after church? There was, a, there was a big bee in our car after church. We needed a security team. Mary's, Mary's freaking out in the, in the passenger seat. She can't even find the door handle to open the door. We haven't even cranked the car yet. But her brave husband swatted the, swatted the bee out the door once she got it, once she got it open. I hope you all know I'm just kidding. I'm just having fun. I have no bravery at all, <laughs> period. <laughs> uh, can you imagine if there had been a snake in the car? And she had gotten in and the snake had lashed hold. Paul had a snake hanging on to him. What would he do? <laughs> and everybody was watching. <laughs> He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. Let's watch him. He's going to swell up. He's going to die. He didn't die. Hey. You know what God did? God protected him. Now, does that mean we're going to have a snake handling service? If we do, I resign. I'm not drinking poison and I'm not playing with snakes. And the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. You don't tempt God. But God can protect somebody who reaches into a pile of wood and comes up with a snake latched onto his hand. God can keep him from dying, can he? That's what the psalmist is talking about. You'll tread the lion, the cobra, the young lion, the serpent. You'll trample them. But then verse 14, 
We come to the third part of the psalm. You get the first two, first two parts? Now we get to the closing of the psalm. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore. Now listen to the I wills. I love this. I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see what he says? Those that are possibly experiencing the retributive justice of God all around you, even to the degree of 10,000 falling all around, snakes and lions and pestilences and people laying traps for you and night terrors and incoming errors, arrows, not errors, arrows, God protects. God says, I'll shield you. Because I never meant my retributive justice to fall on my people. It was to fall on the wicked who've shaken their fist in my face. I'll deliver him. I'll set him on high. When he calls on me, I'll answer him. I'll help him when he's in trouble. I'll deliver him and honor him. I'll satisfy him. I'll show him my salvation. And he'll know that I took care of him and I watched over him. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? I'm running out of time. I've got two minutes left. And I've got 20 minutes of material. <clears throat> Notice what he says here in verse 14. Three reasons why God said he would do this. Number one, because he has set his love on me. I don't, I don't think I can say anything more to you than to say, set your heart on God. You might not like me. You don't have to like me. You're not going to answer to me. I'm going to have to answer for me, not you have to answer for me. I've got to stand before God on my own. You've got to stand before God on your own. It's not about me, whether you like me, you don't, you don't like me. I want you to set your heart on God. Maybe I'm not the best instrument, the best, best vessel to, to be able to. I'm sort of a crackpot kind of a vessel. I'm not one of those fine vases that you put things in. I'm sort of a crackpot. Maybe you don't like crackpots. But it's not me you got to worry about. The one you got to answer to is God, and you set your love on Him. You seek Him with all of your heart. Notice in the middle of verse 14, because. Here's the second one. Because He has known my name. He's known my name. He knows who I am. How many Christians go through this world and don't even know who God, hardly know who God is? And then He says, you'll notice that uh, I will be with him in trouble. I'll deliver him, honor him with long life. I'll satisfy him. Excuse me, verse 15. He shall call upon me. He sets his love on him. He knows who God is. And what does he do? He calls on God. Do you see the three? He sets his love. He sets his love on God. He knows who God is. He knows his name. He knows the character of God. And then he calls out to that God. And God says, I'll answer him. And God comes to deliver. When the retributive justice of God is falling on the wicked, God says, I'll protect my people and keep that away from them. I'll watch over them and shield them from it. 
because they set their love on me, because he's, they've known my name, and because they call on me, they won't have to experience what the rest of the Egyptians were having to experience or what the rest of the world will have to experience if Jesus comes and they're left for the tribulation. I'll watch over them. So you say, Pastor, is there anything here for me to take away? Yeah, yeah, the, the very first thing I said when I started out with context. He's telling these people, don't trust in the amulets, don't trust, not ambulance, in these magical things. Don't trust in the idols. They can't help you. Trust in the Lord. There is, why is it that it's only faith if we get exactly what we want? It's faith when we don't get exactly what we want and we keep believing in spite of not getting what we want. We keep trusting, 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 we keep trusting. Though he slay me, Job said, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I, what's the words? Yet will I trust him. I'll trust him. If he allows my life to be taken away, I'm going to trust him even in those moments. Because God is a God who can be trusted. And so Psalm 191 is good for us. We want the the Most High to be our shelter, our secret place, our shadow. We want him to be our fortress and our refuge. We turn to him. We know that God might not deliver us from every problem we have in life or every reversal we have in life, but we're going to trust him. We're going to trust him because nothing else can help us. No one else can help us. Only the Lord can help us and we choose to believe him and we choose to trust him next week we're talking about psalm 8 we'll talk about creation i'm going to make some more people mad i came back from vacation fired up man let's get it let's get it on uh we're ready to move forward and uh, see god do some incredible things in the coming days